The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. This episode is also brought to you by Screenlight.tv. Screenlight.tv is a video review and approval service for the post-production industry. Post-production teams can now easily share videos and production files with clients worldwide. Utilize their project management and team collaboration tools that include asset management, frame-accurate video feedback, proactive security, and more. All at a price that won't break your production's budget. Use the video review and approval service trusted by post-professionals throughout the world. Screenlight.tv Screenlight.tv Upload anything, get feedback, and finish projects faster. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we have Kelly Dixon. And if you don't know Kelly Dixon, she's worked on such things as Breaking Bad, The Walking Dead, and is currently cutting Better Call Saul. This interview had its start in the American Cinema Editor's Edit Fest this year. And we talked at Edit Fest, and as soon as I got back, I started reaching out to her to, to sort of organize this interview. And so it's a long interview, so it's broken into three sections. This is part one of our interview, and afterwards, I'll fill you in on some of the things that uh, AOTG's been up to and some of the things you can check out. So enjoy part one of my interview with Kelly Dixon. I'd heard you mention that you had originally studied journalism and were looking to get into writing for advertising. So I was wondering, what was it about those areas that interested you? And also, uh, what have you taken from those areas that you use in, in your editing process now? This is going to sound so lame, but when I was in, in high school, I saw this movie that Jackie Gleason and Tom Hanks were in. It was a movie about Tom Hanks was caring for his ailing father, like Jackie Gleason played his ailing father, but he was also a creative exec for an ad agency. And I never knew that kind of job existed, but I love the fact that, you know, basically they were called upon to uh, get together with a team and work on some kind of campaign for, at the time, in the movie it was an airline, coming up with a campaign. And, you know, I think the thing that that I really keyed into with it was uh, the fact that it was a team, that you worked as a team. And that also you didn't have to dress up for work, like you wore jeans to work and stuff like that. So I, I like the idea of that and also just because it was very free form. And so I thought, you know, I, in high school I was in a program called Junior Achievement and it was all about free enterprise and business and stuff like that. So I had a sort of a business background and I thought advertising would be way more fun than going into the corporate world. So what what was it that made you transition into editing? Oh, it was because I when I got uh, out to California after college, couldn't I couldn't even break into a, a mailroom in any of the ad agencies. Like you know, I had like my star ad agencies I wanted to get into, like you know, Shyat Day or Sachi and Sachi, you know, stuff like that. And I couldn't get I couldn't get into any mailrooms. I had a cousin who knew the the guy who ran the mailroom at the time at MGM. And she kind of called and to see if I could get an interview. And I got an interview and I got in there. So I guess it was going to be the film business. 
Now, you you got into assisting at an early age, but you you stayed in there for a very long time. Why? Way too long. Way too long. Why did you choose to stay, or was it a choice of yours, or? God, it sort of was a choice, but it also was because the opportunity didn't present itself. When I got into assisting, um, just basically being into the film business, it's like my first thought was I want to be a production assistant because. Being a production assistant meant that you could come to work and just run around getting stuff for people and ride around on the studio lots on a bicycle. And that sounded like the coolest thing in the world. You got to be in on everything. Everybody knew you and you could just, you know, make money and just ride around on a bicycle delivering stuff. Um, and then at first I wanted to be in, in the camera department because I just thought being in the camera department was really cool because you were in on everything. You know, a lot of production jobs are sit around and wait until it's time for you to do something. Whereas in the camera department, you're pretty much doing stuff all the time and you're in on, you know, everything that's going on. You're in the middle of it. But uh, I kind of realized that I didn't really like the hours that production had to spend. I wasn't really into getting up at four o'clock in the morning and staying until one o'clock in the morning and freezing and, you know, in the rain and stuff like that. I had done some editing in college. I was, you know, journalism in college. So I, I did a little bit of editing and I thought it was really quite fun. Um, and so when I, uh, I was a production assistant on the TV show 30-something, and one of my jobs was to bring script pages from the set to the editors. And I realized that the editors could come in like 9 or 10 in the morning. And yeah, they stayed quite late, but it was always very climate controlled. And the big selling point also was not only was I good at it and I was, it was fun, but the big selling point was, you know, production. Like editors start when everybody else starts. Editors start when production starts but they end months and months and months, sometimes years later. And I was like, well, I, you know, that means that I wouldn't have to look for a job as often either. And so, you know, I figured, well, you know what, I, I really dig editing and I'm actually very good at it. So I'd like to go this way. At the time, you know, features, features were much bigger, much bigger than they are today. And feature assistants made a lot of money, a lot of money. And they stayed on jobs for months and months and months and months, sometimes years. And they worked with editors and they, they got to go all over the world sometimes and work on these really big features. And it was, it sounded like the coolest thing in the world. They go on location and, you know, stay in hotels and just sound like it, sound like camp. And I thought that that would be really, really cool if I could get a job as one of these big feature assistants. And basically, I wouldn't have to look for a job because the editor would already get the job. And they'd just call you up and say, we're going to go to Italy or we're going to China, you know, and you just go. Um, and you make a lot of money. Um, and I chased that for a long time, you know, as an assistant. I, I would work. Uh, I was trained uh, in the very beginning on a video system. Uh, it was a nonlinear system, but it used videotape. And but I also, because of thirty something, I was working for Ed Zwick at the time, and he was at the at the time he was he was in the middle of editing Glory, which was um, cut by Steve Rosenblum. And their cutting rooms were right across the street from our offices at thirty something. And so with those guys' blessing, I actually went over there and learned how to do the film side as well. So I was over there doing trims for them and stuff like that for their assistants. And I learned both ends, and what I found out much later was that there weren't a whole lot of, assist of assistants who could actually do both. There were, there were film assistants and there were video assistants or later become digital assistants, but there weren't a lot of people who could, who could basically switch hit like that. 
and I could actually do that. And so it turned out that I got a lot of jobs because I could actually do that. And But I was still chasing that elusive big feature editor thing where I could just like, you know, just wait at home by the phone and they would say, okay, pack your bags, we're going here. And you just get paid and never have to look for a job. Um, so I got close a couple of times, but I never really got there. And so I was still assisting. And really at the time it was like, you know, it was pretty hard to move up. I mean, especially feature assistants. And even now, feature assistants have a really tough time moving up. TV assistants would move up, but I, w- I really wasn't interested at that point. I was really kind of chasing that big assistant, you know, big feature assistant job. The closest I got to it was I did Goodwill Hunting. And I, that was my first and only time that I went on location. And it was uh, it was an interesting experience. But then my next job was in television. And, you know, from then on, I just kind of stayed in television. They just, I would just keep getting calls, you know, from television. So, you know, I just stayed in TV. And then uh, I guess like sometime around like 2002, 2003, somewhere around there, my friends started to move up, you know, by, but for some, you know, weird situation, somebody, you know, would get an opportunity on some TV show and they would move up. Or, you know, and a lot of people are moving up and it turned out that I was the last one of like my peers, like friends of mine to move up. And I started to get like really antsy. Like I better like kind of, you know, get my, can I, can I curse on your show? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) I better get my shit together and, and, uh, and, and figure out, you know, a game plan. Um, this is this, this whole idea of, you know, going around the world as an assistant, making a lot of money is not going to happen. And honestly, it was like, Kelly, do you really want to be an assistant for your whole life? No, I was getting, I was getting a little tired of being an assistant. You know, every assistant hits that point where they're getting sick of dailies and, you know, doing that stuff. And, and so I was working with a friend of mine on a miniseries. One of the editors on that miniseries was uh, Lynn Willingham. Um, and she was like a big, you know, she was a big deal to me because um, she had done the X-Files and her husband was, her, his name is Chris Willingham and he had also done the X-Files and he was a big editor on 24 at the time, which was my favorite show. And it was just like, to me, they were like an editing powerhouse, you know, and it's like, you know, I, I was just, I just felt very lucky to meet them. And it turned out that I got along really well with Lynn and she got a job on Without a Trace for CBS at the time. And she asked me if I would like to go. And I knew that with her, I was going to get to edit. And also everybody, every assistant that had ever worked with her had moved up. So I was like, okay, well, here, here's sort of like, you know, the the dream sort of. Uh, basically, it's not the big feature job, but it is a big TV job. She is a star in her field. She is a star editor in town. She'll get the good jobs, and all I have to do is wait, you know, by the phone. I won't have to look for work if, I, if, if you know, I assist her. And eventually, hopefully, I'll move up, or at least I'll get to cut a lot. So that's what I did. I went and worked for her and then and won the lottery. Basically, she, you know, was not looking for a pilot, but she got a call from Vince Gilligan, uh, who she had worked with on the X-Files, and she decided to do the Breaking Bad pilot. And that's kind of, in a nutshell, how I won the assistant lottery. Yeah. Wow. And Sorry. <laughs> so long-winded. No, no, no. It's it's more than fine. I, what, I, what I find fascinating is that also you, you were sort of striving for that feature film but the storytelling in television now is like amazing oh i yeah now people ask me all the time don't you want to do features and i'm like why you know 
the television is great. And I'm a big fan. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan, not necessarily, not necessarily only working, but um, as far as like watching, I'm a huge fan of the long form television, you know, the long form serialized television, you know, and I love it. And I love the fact that, you know, they, who, you know, good shows can tell, a, you know, a 60 episode story, you know, I, I mean, you walk into a movie and it's over in two, three hours. That's why I like to read. You know, books are like, you know, the books stay with you as long as you're reading them. I mean, and then after as well. But you're you're living that story while you're reading that book, whether it takes, you know, a few days or weeks. Uh, it doesn't take me a few days to read books. But you get to stay with that story. And I love the fact that, you know, with a television show, say House of Cards, which I really love. It's like, that's like a that's like a 13 episode story and when they drop that thing you know on, on a weekend it's like wow you know you know and, and you know it's not going to be over in two hours it's going to be you're in it for the long haul i mean i never binge watched i don't binge watch a m much but um and i really want to go back and binge watch uh breaking bad i've never done that i mean i've barely seen the episodes that I didn't do more than once. People who tell me that they binge watch Breaking Bad, I'm like, what a great, you know, opportunity, you know, for like, wow, you, you get to be immersed in this world for 62 hours. That That's like, that's, that sounds like a great time. <laughs> now, so. you, you mentioned uh, the X-Files and I, I heard in an interview when I was doing research for this that you were a fan of the X-Files show originally? like a, um... I was a big fan of the X-Files, but you know what? I didn't really become a fan until probably it was a after it was over. I mean, I was watching it probably in its heyday, like season four, season five, season six, that kind of thing. I watched it a little bit then. I remember like being like part of like a little group of people that would get together and watch, especially season finales and stuff. Um, I, I, I'd never seen all of them. And for some reason, like... God, I don't even remember when it was. It was several years ago, but I think TNT would like air them like on Tuesdays and Wednesdays for like six hours, right? And they would air them in order. So, you know, and they would do it, they would recur, they would keep going. So it was basically like if you caught it, you could be done with a season like in a couple of weeks, you know what I mean? And, and so I got really into that. And then I discovered that Netflix had them all. And so I started ordering the, the DVDs so I could start seeing them. And I just got really, really into it. And then that's right after that, I got that job on that miniseries with Lynn Willingham. It was also being post-produced by Paul Rabwin, the guy who post-produced like all nine seasons of the X-Files. So I was kind of in a little bit of a geek heaven when I did this miniseries. And I had a lot of questions. It's so funny too, because you know, I'd ask them questions and they're like, we haven't worked on that show in like three or four years. And they wouldn't remember. And I'd be like, how could you forget things like that? But now people ask me questions about Breaking Bad and I'm like, uh, I don't remember. How on earth could you forget that? You know, I'm like, I totally understand. And did you follow up with the the Lone Gunman? Did you watch that series afterwards? I wasn't I didn't really watch the Lone Gunman. Actually Vince has actually given me um the the whole I think the whole season I think they only did one one or two but um one or part of two or something like that but he's given me that but I've only seen like two or three of them I think it's a cool series but I'm so behind on television right now it's like I need to be I, there's so many things just on my DVR in the last that have occurred in the last three months that I'm behind on but uh, but yeah no I, I have watched a few of them and I enjoyed it I watched a little bit of Millennium the only one that I really didn't like was Harsh Realm. 
with shows like Breaking Bad, they tend to become very uh, secretive with the scripts because they have to, right? They want to protect oh, yeah. the ending. So how does that affect you in the the editing process? Are scripts withheld or, or any they moments? Didn't really, they didn't really start doing that on Breaking Bad until like the end of, I think probably in season 5A. I mean, because, you know, the show was, I mean, you know, people really liked the show, but it didn't like blow up until after they blew Gus up. You know, at that point, and at that point, people were like binge watching, and they couldn't wait. You know, for season, and all of a sudden, you know, things got out of control. It got crazy. Um, so what they did was they started. I'm not sure which script, and I don't remember, you know, the situation. But they started to call the show something different with the vendors. I believe it was probably starting at the last season, season five. Um, they started calling it. It had different. It had a code name with the vendors. Um, we were already in a very, very, uh, nondescript location with our editing room and our writer's room. So we didn't really have to deal with, I never really heard about any kind of nefarious activity, you know, being going on, but, you know, things had always been watermarked. You know, we always have our name on stuff, but at that point they, I think they started to, um, redact you know, some things uh, in scripts where they just, you know, black out lines and stuff. And for us to like see, you know, what actually happened, we had to go into the office, into the writer's office and look at, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a copy that they had there just for that purpose. It wasn't that much for us. It wasn't that much. But on the other hand, I do know that they probably restricted a lot of scripts to a lot of departments. Our department editorial wasn't one that they, they definitely, we definitely got redacted scripts, but they didn't really restrict our, you know, getting um, it, the script because we had to have it. Mm-hmm. You know? Now I've noticed in, in other, anytime I've seen you talk, you show a lot of respect to the other crafts in the industry uh, and specifically writing. Like I've, I've seen you sort of, you know, you know, all the writers names, you make sure that people are aware of them in interviews. And I was wondering, Whenever you get like a script for something like Breaking Bad and you might have to alter something or change something, would you go back to the writers and talk to them about it or get them involved in some way? You mean like just kind of go off book with what I'm doing or something? Yeah, like, well, like, like if I'm going to restructure a scene or something? Yeah, yeah, if, if you have to restructure um, stuff. Usually, no, would, we wouldn't go back to the writers. And here's why it's sort of, I think it, it sort of takes its cue from the way that the guilds are structured and the way that the guild contractually, you know, things are structured as far as like who gets what information when I think it's totally wrong. I I don't like the way that this is, but this is the way that it is. Basically, um, you know, the writer will write that script, but then it becomes the directors. And at the, the, by the time I get it, the director is, you know, in full control at that point. So, um, I, it would be going over a director's head for me to go back to that writer and discuss any part of the production because the director at that point has full control of the cut. You know, it's like, I can't, the director hasn't like, it's like, I have an editor's cut that is only for the director to see. So I can't, go beyond that director and show the writer or show the producer or anything unless you know there are there are, um 
exceptions, I guess, to that rule. I mean, you know, obviously depends on who the players are. And if they absolutely need to see something, then they get to. But the thing is, is that everybody is fairly respectful of the process. And so um, the director really is in control at that point. So really, if you're going to show anybody anything, he's the first person. So that was part one of my interview with Kelly. AOTG's been up to a lot. We're going to have the next issue of The Assembly out. And if you haven't seen The Assembly, go to aotg.com assembly. And you'll see it's an interactive magazine for the editors. And it allows you to connect information to the article you're reading as you read it. So if you're reading an article about editing, say, Noah, because that's one of the articles in the first issue, all you have to do is click a button and all the links from our database connects to it. So it's a, it's a little more immersive in the reading process. With that said, I'd like to thank Andrea Elijah for cutting this episode. I'd like to thank Kelly Dixon and, of course, my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.